Our Own Press presents The Cradle, written and performed by T.M. Camp. She woke suddenly, splashing backward against the trees. She cast wildly around for a moment, in confusion, no idea where she was. It was night, and there was a thunderous noise overhead. She looked up, saw the sweep of intertwined branches, heard the hammer of rain against the dome above, the rumble of thunder in the skies beyond. The floor of the dome had flooded, rising up around the trees. G was soaked to the skin. She wiped her hair from her eyes, a wave of disappointment sweeping over her. For a moment, it all surfaced like a half-remembered dream. J.R. and June, the meal under the trees, their warm hospitality and the baby with the bright blue eyes. What was her name? Soapy. The baby was crying, G realized. The plaintive wails echoed across the dome above her, mingled with the sounds of the storm. The relief she felt at knowing it had not been just a dream was quickly replaced by panic. The baby was crying. G circled the trees in ankle-deep water, one hand on the trunks to steady herself. She could not quite place the direction the cries were coming from. The trees swayed under her palm, shuddering with the force of the storm, and still the waters were rising. Somewhere, the baby was crying. G threw herself into the water without another thought. Her feet found the floor and she floundered through the water as she stopped to listen. It was impossible to know if she was headed the right way or just chasing echoes around the dome. Her feet slipped on the tiles. The river had jumped its banks. She was waist-deep in it, and she could feel the cold tug of the current on her. G looked in the direction that the river was flowing and saw something. A little shape bobbing along in the water. At first she couldn't quite make it out, and then it turned to the side, showing the upturned curve and the thin slats like the strings on a harp. It was the cradle. She plowed through the waters as fast as she could, shouting so that the baby would know she wasn't alone, that help was on its way. And then, unexpectedly, the floor dropped out from under her. G tumbled under the surface, nothing but the sound of water rushing in her ears. It's only water. I won't forget, she told herself. She closed her eyes and kicked hard. I won't lose everything I've seen and done. I won't lose who I am. It's only water. She broke the surface, looking around wildly as she paddled along. The dome was behind her. She'd overshot the steps and fallen out into the deeper water beyond. The cradle was closer, though. That was something. G swam as best she could, adding her own efforts to the current. She didn't worry about the water anymore, about forgetting everything or going blind as her brother had. All she cared about was saving Soapy. The water spread out, flowing into the trees around the dome. 
G had to dodge trunks and roots, doing her best not to get tangled up. She could barely see the cradle, not sure if she was getting closer or not. But she could hear the baby screaming, louder now, drowning out all other worries. Panic drove G forward through the maze of trees. Finally, she felt her open hand strike the side of the cradle, accidentally pushing it away. A few more strokes and she caught up with it once more. With relief, she hooked one hand through the slats of the cradle, doing her best not to tip it over. She paddled along next to it, desperate for a shallow place where she could stand and pick up Soapy to comfort her. Thunder again. Lightning simultaneous, they were in the heart of the storm now. The baby shrieked. It tore at G's heart. She cast about for some way to let Soapy know she wasn't alone. That someone was there. That everything would be okay. And so, without anything better coming to mind, she began to sing. My life flows on in endless song. Above earth, blah, 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 blah. I hear a sound from up ahead that sounds like someone singing. Through all the thunder and the storm, I hope that girl keeps swimming. She found me there and kept me warm. How can I keep from singing? Forgetting the words, G had to improvise. She couldn't tell if it was helping or not. There was something, though, there in her voice. Stronger now. G cast it out like a rope for the baby to hold on to. No storm can shake my inmost calm. While to that girl I'm clinging, since I know all, what earth are one, how can I keep from singing? It sounded like Soapy had settled down. G's song had reached her. The baby had tapered off into whimpering and, soon enough, silence. G took this as a good sign. I lift my eyes. The storm calms down. I see the blue skies all around. And soon enough, I hope we'll be safe at last on solid ground. After a long pause, the baby began to cry again. So she paddled along, singing anything that came into her head, mostly stuff from J.R.'s old records since the baby seemed to like his voice. There was no telling how long it went on, but eventually the sky began to brighten. G could see the clouds breaking up, the sound of thunder in the distance behind her. In the growing light of morning, she realized that she had no idea where she was. The waters had carried the cradle along, and she had followed. And she was tired, exhausted, her legs felt heavy, and the effort to raise her free arm and paddle was almost impossible. Just when she was starting to worry that maybe she might be in real trouble, G felt something scrape against her knees. At last. 
Gratefully, she struggled to her feet, stumbling through the water on rubbery legs. She pulled the cradle over to her and looked in. Big blue eyes stared back up at her, and the girl, called Soapy, smiled. That was all the strength Jean needed to drag the cradle along in the water, following the rising slope of the land until they were more or less on solid, though not particularly dry, ground. She sat there, soaked to the skin, one hand still on the cradle, rocking. Inside, the baby slept, safe and sound at last as the storm overhead broke up under the force of that smile. And, in time, G slept as well. She woke, squinting against the shimmering light bouncing off of the water all around her. For a place with no sun, it sure does get bright around here, she thought. She yawned and then froze, her mouth open in a gasp. The cradle was nowhere to be seen. Leaping to her feet, she saw a dark shape out on the glittering face of the water. She ran out into the current, preparing to throw herself back in once more. She stumbled, her legs sore and sapped of strength. She could barely hold herself up. Caught by the current now, the cradle was moving fast. Too fast. She could never get to it in time, even on her best day as a swimmer. Choking on her sobs and failure, she dragged herself back to shore and fell forward, barely able to raise herself up and watch as the cradle drifted out of sight. She beat her hands against the ground, throwing up little splashes of light and water. Full of fear and desperation, she threw out her hands, threw out her voice, reaching for the cradle, reaching out for the gods, for the ones who had come and saved the old man and the old woman, for the fleet one and the one with thunder. And, for the first time in her life, or her afterlife for that matter, G prayed with all her heart. When she'd finally run out of words, run out of tears, she lay and watched the cradle drift away across the shimmering water. She recognized that light, the play of it on the face of the river. She thought of her brother and her mother. A water's her one she whispered, and she heard an echo in the back of her mind. The trick with babies is to let them drift off on their own. She nodded and let the cradle go. It was hard, but she knew J.R. was right. After she had rested a while, G rose and walked away, leaving the shining river behind her. Wherever she was headed, whatever happened next, she knew that she, like the cradle, was in the hands of the gods. you something now, 
Something I assure you is true, and you are just going to have to decide for yourself whether or not to believe me. I did not want to write this book. In fact, I did everything I could to avoid it. Let me explain. I was perfectly satisfied with where Assam and Darjeeling left off. As far as I was concerned, the story ended exactly where it should. I was content to let those two kids go on into the rest of their lives, or their afterlives as the case may be, without having to worry about me stalking them every step of the way. Once the palace door closed, I was done. Like a psalm, I was content to head for home. Admittedly, not everyone felt the same. I've received and continue to receive any number of emails from people asking, what happens next? My own daughter, Julia, was among them. Of course, she might have had a bit of a vested interest since she was the original inspiration for the character of G way back when. Even the few agents and wannabe Hollywood types that managed to feign interest in the book were adamant that there needed to be more. It had to be a trilogy at least, they told me, in order to convince publishers that it was marketable, like Twilight or Harry Potter. No. I'm sorry, but no. No sequels, no franchises. The story stands, for good or ill, on its own, right where it is. But, if I'm being honest, I have to say that I did have a few questions of my own. Edgar, for instance. That little bastard has a story worth telling. And Juniper? There's that business about his heart. Who broke it, and how? There's a story there as well. Those are books I'd be glad to take a crack at one day, if the gods are kind. But for the rest of it, especially G and Assam, I was happy to let them go on ahead without me. Or Assam. Over the years, there's only been one person who's ever asked me what happened to him. Most everyone else, though, wanted to know more. Especially about G. Not me. I was done with her. Over time, however, I began to wonder. Perhaps I should explain a little bit more about the book you've just listened to. First off, apart from the fact that I didn't want to write it, I also have no idea where this story came from. This isn't usually the case with my work. With most everything I've ever written, I can trace it back to a single moment. The odd kernel of an idea, the odd notion passing through my head, the happenstance conversation or event, the momentary flash of observation, the fragment of dream that inspired it. Not so with the cradle. Not at all. I'm sure there must have been something, but for the life of me, I cannot tell you what it was. But there had to have been something because this was the last book I would have chosen to write. And yet, somehow, I started writing. And soon enough, it was clear to me that what I was writing was deeply important to me. It somehow coalesced more of my personal beliefs and ideas than anything I'd written before. It was easy writing, too. I was well on my way to having the first draft done in a month or so. And then, 
quite a bit earlier than expected, my youngest daughter was born. Suddenly, there was precious little time for anything but diapers and late-night feedings and getting whatever sleep I could, whenever I could. So a book that should have taken a few weeks to finish took nearly a year. As the months went by, there were times when I wondered if perhaps I'd lost the thread of the story for good. This one was in danger of becoming just another unfinished project to throw in the filing cabinet. But somehow, a character I created, somehow she spent the time and the effort to push through into this life and remind me that she needed me. Twice, actually. The first was easy to dismiss, just a dream I had one morning. I was standing in the upstairs hallway of our house, taking the baby back to her crib after a feeding. As we came out of the bedroom door, I saw a girl standing at the far end of the hallway. It was summer, just before dawn. The air in the hallway was close and humid. I could feel the weight of it in my lungs as I gasped at the sight of her there. A silhouette in the open door at the end of the hall, the gray light of pre-dawn blurring the edges of her knit cap her puffy coat, her snow pants. I did not think to look to see if she was barefoot, but I knew her. I'd have known her anywhere. It was G. And then I woke up. Just a dream, then. Commonplace in my profession. Chalk it up to imagination and too many sleepless nights. And yet, I couldn't shake the sense that this girl was in danger. That she was trying to reach me. That she wanted to tell me something. Something important. The second time, well, that time she managed to push further in. Well past the boundaries of dream and into the waking world. One evening, a month or so after that dream... I was headed upstairs to change a diaper. I remember being happy, content. My wife was down in the kitchen, banging dinner in the shape, and the baby, her name is Sophie, in case you were wondering, she was perhaps six months old now, suddenly so much heavier in my arms than the little baby we brought home from the hospital. I was singing to her as we came upstairs. Blue moon, or south of the border, probably. At the top, I glanced briefly into my daughter Julia's room and froze. There was a girl there, sitting on the floor. For an instant, I thought it was Julia, but then I remembered that she was away for the weekend. The girl was hugging her legs close to her chest, her face buried in her knees. She was crying, great racking sobs that shook her whole body. Her hair hung down, hiding her face. She wore a ragged dress, not much more than a shift, and, yes, she was barefoot. I'd have known her anywhere. And then she was gone. There was no, and then I woke up, this time. I went into the baby's room and, somehow, managed to change a diaper, despite my tears. Downstairs, 
I fell to pieces a bit. The vision, apparition, ghost? Whatever it was, it had left me profoundly disturbed. I was fretful, worried, and more than a little afraid for my absent daughter. After hearing about what I'd seen, my wife said, Call Julia, just to make sure she's okay. And then, because she is so much smarter than I, she added, You probably need to finish that story soon. And so I did. I called my daughter, and later that evening, after the rest of the house was asleep, I went downstairs into my basement office and got to work. We're going on two years now, two years since I first started riding the cradle. The baby isn't a baby anymore. In fact, it occurs to me that she's now almost exactly the same age that her big sister was when I first started riding Assam and Darjeeling, so very long ago now. I don't know what exactly I think of all this. I don't blame you if you don't believe it. All I know is that once upon a time, I was positive that I was finished with G. And now, I find that there are a handful of things taking shape in my mind, little glimpses of G, wherever she is. Moments and episodes and, yes, new stories, slowly coming into view like a forgotten dream sneaking up on you after you've awakened, reminding you that it's there. The cradle is the first of these. I have to admit that it seems I might not be done with G, after all. And, truth be told, I'm glad to know she isn't done with me, either. Acknowledgements. Since Assam and Darjeeling was first published, many readers have written to me about G, asking if there will be more stories about her. I have a sense that people are genuinely concerned about her, and on some level, they actually miss her. This is deeply moving to me, and I'm grateful to all of you. Don't worry. I expect we'll see G again and I'll do my best to keep her safe, for all our sakes. A number of people were extremely helpful in getting this book ready for press. In particular, I'm deeply indebted to Christy Yant and Donna Baker for taking the time to comb through the manuscript and help identify any inconsistencies and errors. If you find anything wrong now, it's my fault. Likewise, I'm deeply grateful to Wes Covey, for providing me with some entirely undeserved praise for the back cover of this book. And then there's Michael Levy, who so graciously gave me permission to use two of his excellent hymns to complement the audiobook that you've listened to here. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge my friend Maureen Abley here. She is very dear to me, for reasons too numerous to mention, but it's worth saying that the first time I planted these two trees, 
It was for her. I first came across the story of Baucis and Philemon when I was very young, looking for something new to read among the shelves at home. By luck, I found a battered copy of the Myths and Legends volume in the Young Folk Shelf of Books. Among those stories was The Miraculous Pitcher by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This story, indeed many of the stories in that volume, have stayed with me over the intervening years. In fact, Myths and Legends is sitting there on the bookshelf in front of me as I write this. The volume was edited by Mabel Williams and Marshall Dolphin, so I am deeply grateful to them both. As, of course, I am to Hawthorne, though he swiped the story from the poet Ovid, who, as far as I can tell, almost certainly invented the original tale out of whole cloth for his metamorphoses. And now I've stolen it for my own as well. The story of Balsas and Philemon has been with me for over 35 years. Every reading of it adds a deeper level to my own understanding of what it means to be hospitable, to be kind, to be faithful. I have a long way to go and very much yet to learn, but I have no doubt that the story will remain with me until the very end, when I am doddering along with my wife Keeley in some little shack in a forest somewhere. And I can think of no better way to move on from this wonderful life that we have been given together than intertwined in her embrace, our hands raised in gratitude to our gods. T.M. Camp, January 21st, 2012. This book is a work of fiction. All situations, events, and characters are nothing more nor less than products of the author's imagination. And it's entirely possible that some of you are as well. Any resemblance to persons living, dead, or somewhere in between is entirely coincidental, especially if any of them want to sue me. This recording of The Cradle was produced by Our Own Press and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. It is copyright 2012, TM Camp, all rights reserved, except for the music, which is copyright Michael Levy. Violators of this copyright will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and suffer the fury of the gods poured out in mighty waves of unending wrath until nothing of your selfish lands remain but water as far as the eye can see. Or 
being turned into goats. Either way, you'll be sorry. You'll see. This recording was originally distributed as a free download through the author's website at www.tmcamp.com. The music is available from Michael Levy's website at www.ancientliar.com. Our own press, bringing readers and writers together, one story at a time.